back in September, knowing that we would be drawing to a close in our study in Colossians around this time, I began to pray and consider where we would go next. I was planning to stay in the New Testament, but it was never my intention to continue with another Pauline epistle. In fact, I very much wanted to avoid that. But most of you have heard me repeatedly discuss the decline in the commitment to participation in the local church. Within six months of having my life turned towards Christ, I had a discussion with several people, those that were influential in my life, at least at that time. And I distinctly remember a conversation in which they had said, I don't need to attend church. I can be wherever I want and have church right there with God. This over-spiritualization of the church, I think, has convinced many people that participation in the local body of Christ is unimportant. It's no surprise when the secular society turns its back on the church. But it is a great concern when those who profess Christ neglect participation in the body of Christ. It is this concern then that has driven me to go towards 1 Timothy and this Paul, letter of Paul as he writes to his own spiritual child. And that is where we will now spend our next time and study so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, For His Glory, The Life Call of the Lord. For those of you who may be using the Bible in front of you, you can find the text on page 932. Always please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I will read through verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about what they make confident assertions. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. You may be seated. (coughs) 
living in Germany during the Second World War, Sophie Scholl saw and experienced the horrors of the Nazi regime firsthand. So bad were the atrocities that she knew that she could not sit back and do nothing. And so together with her brother and others who made up what is now known as the White Rose Resistance, she began to distribute leaflets and that publicly called for the resistance against Hitler, against his followers, and against his policies. Despite the risks, even to the point of arrest and, and possibly death, she continued forward until one day she and her brother were finally caught by the Gestapo as they were handing out those leaflets at a local university. Both of them were imprisoned. They were interrogated and they were tortured. Yet they still refused to reveal their coworkers and their friends in this movement. The basis for doing what was right for Sophie was her foundational belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so after her arrest, she was brought before the court. She was accused and convicted of treason and then would be sentenced to die by guillotine. Until her final moment, she would remain faithful to the Lord. She would testify to who he was, who he is. She would continue sharing the truth of salvation found through his son. Though she would eventually lose her life, the Lord used even that dark moment to send forth his word, to bring people to himself, and ultimately to bring glory upon himself by using her to faithfully proclaim his word. Despite the horrible nature of that true story, God's plan is always perfect. And God will always bring glory to himself. He does that by working through individuals. The Lord's glory does not shine forth only when all is well in the world. His plan is not perfect only when there is no dissension in the world. In its darkest moments and in its most trying times, the Lord's plan is still perfect. And he will still receive the glory that is due to him. If that is true, then the institution of the church falls within the parameters of God's perfect plan. If the Lord is perfect, if the Lord never makes a mistake, then his establishment of the church as a means to counsel people and declare his own majesty must also be perfect. In fact, if it were possible, I would say that it is more than perfect. The Lord is all-knowing. The Lord is all-wise. He knows all things about all things. And because he knows all things about all things, and at the same time is all-wise and able to apply all that knowledge, we know that he has orchestrated this together perfectly. It is in his perfect knowledge and in his perfect wisdom that the Lord institutes the church. The Lord knows exactly what people need and when they need it. And so we must look upon the creation of the church then and understand that the Lord deemed the church the very thing necessary for the people at that time to accomplish his purposes on earth. It's saddening then when the church 
that is made to fulfill the will of the Lord instead is relegated to fulfilling the wants of humanity instead. That's the situation we find in Ephesus and the reason for Paul's writing to Timothy. Like the letters to Colossians, the one we just finished, false teaching has infiltrated the church. The difference between Ephesus and the church in Colossae is that here in Ephesus, the false teaching is coming from within. It's coming from those who have been members of the church, and in some cases, they've even been in leadership. And so Paul sends his most trusted co-laborer, whom he calls his very own spiritual son, Timothy. And he, he sends him to act as an interim minister to guide the church through this time of turmoil. Throughout the process, Paul is constantly offering counsel and wisdom to Timothy. And though he hopes to visit Timothy, he does not know when that may happen, if at all. In fact, we learn later that it didn't happen because Paul would die. And so he tells Timothy that he's, he's written to him, so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It is with this background then that Paul begins his letter and he does so in a manner that is typical for his day. He introduces himself, he identifies who he's writing to, and then he offers a greeting. I want you to note first, as we look at the text, the divine commission. The divine commission. Paul begins his letter to Timothy by recounting the charge that he's been given by God. From the beginning, Paul's course was very different signifying that his life and his ministry would also be very different as well. Like the disciples, Paul was directly called by the Lord. And like the disciples, that call began as a summons to overcome spiritual blindness. But Paul's call from Christ came as a result of Christ first striking him blind physically. And when Jesus called each disciple to come and follow me, each could turn from what he was doing and indeed follow the Lord Jesus Christ, physically walking towards him. But Paul, Paul couldn't do that for lack of sight. In fact, it would become a picture of spiritual life. The fact that Paul would have to actually cling to Christ and allow Christ to guide him in his blindness without even knowing the final destination. It's a picture of simply just trusting Christ and his way being good because we know Christ to be good. The moment on the road to Damascus when Jesus met Paul, or Paul met Jesus rather, and Jesus blinded him, at that moment he placed a call in Paul's life, a call that would establish Paul as an apostle. He would be charged by Christ to represent him as an apostle, as an ambassador. After that call, Paul would sit under teaching for the next three years, at least. <clears throat> only after that time would he then enter ministry. And only then would he preach the gospel of Christ to that region of the world, all according to the very plan of the Lord. This unique commission for Paul, though, had been set in place long before Paul's conversion, long before he ever met Christ on that road to Damascus. Even in that time in which Paul acted against the Lord, 
when he was persecuting the Lord's followers. Even that establishes this unique charge that God had for Paul. Before Christ caught his attention, Paul was out there persecuting and oppressing those that claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. First off, in the deaths and the beatings of those that, that Paul oversaw, or at least guided his men to take part in, the Lord was still glorified. We saw that in a testimony in Acts 7 from Stephen, where he calls upon the Lord. But for Paul, his participation in such violent affairs serves to magnify the Lord, showing just how profound the work of the Lord is. Because it shows that God can take a person from one extreme and bring them to another extreme. Changing Paul's role from persecuting others to now being persecuted by others. All for the same reason, for following Christ. In Paul, God has established a special commission. Paul identifies that here in 1 Timothy. And he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. By command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. The circumstances faced by Timothy and Ephesus are difficult. They require leadership. They require authority. And so before he does anything else, because he's giving instruction to Timothy, that Timothy will probably follow, Paul is establishing his own authority. He's giving instructions to Timothy in the church, and Paul is solidifying his own expectations, Essentially saying, I expect you to live out the counsel because of the authority I've been given by Christ. Such a declaration would then add weight to Timothy suggesting that Timothy's not merely instituting his own will. Instead, he's following Paul on behalf of the Lord. This is Paul then saying, follow Timothy inasmuch as he follows me, and Timothy will follow me inasmuch as I follow Christ. If Paul is establishing the rules and the priorities in order to, to regulate the church, it was important for these people to understand what authority Paul had for doing so. He is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that Paul undertakes is not undertaken under his own initiative, Instead, it is done in a manner that is consistent with the character and with the command of Christ. All of Paul's instructions and all of Paul's influence must be guided by the worth and work of Christ. Paul's role as an apostle, it's, it's not sought out by him. It's not directed by him. And in fact, it would probably be much easier for Paul if he had directed it himself, that it was self-initiated. Because in that case, he would be under no obligation to satisfy the will of God or the wants of people. If it was self-directed on his own part, he would only need to satisfy what he wanted to accomplish. But notice how Paul identifies the charge here. He says it was commanded. Paul's title as an apostle was imparted to him by a royal decree, by an executive order. And that decree doesn't come by some lowly being like the King of England or the President of the United States. This decree, it's given by the Supreme Being, the Sovereign Lord who oversees all things for all things. Such a command in the sense that it is at least used in our text, 
It can only be given by one who is higher in rank, like a military rank, in which a colonel directs his subordinates, and they're obligated to obey because they're of a lower rank. That's what we see here. It's the same idea when Jesus commands the unclean spirit to leave Mark, leave the lady in Mark, sorry, or the same idea when he commands the wind to stop. Being of lower rank, both the spirit and the wind, they're obligated to obey the word of the one who has rank and authority. And now here, by this charge, Paul's commission comes from Jesus Christ alone. Jesus, who is of higher rank than Paul, and so Paul is obligated to obey it. Paul is obligated to become an apostle. The authority of this charge prompts Paul to defend his commission to the Corinthians. He writes to them, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. It's the divine presence of God that makes Paul's commission both unique and special. Had Paul's commission come from human authority, perhaps Paul could have taken his apostleship very lightly. But Paul has been commissioned by God. He's been directed by God. He's been empowered by God, and now he is responsible to obey God. Notice the specificity of what Paul writes. He highlights the reality that the, the entire Godhead is involved and present in this divine commission. It comes first by God the Father, who Paul distinguishes as our Savior. Such a title is often reserved for Christ, since it was Christ's work on the cross that brought salvation to people. But here, Paul highlights God's work in that salvation. You'll find that title used only in the pastoral epistles in the New Testament. But God as Savior is found multiple times in the Old Testament. Isaiah writes, speaking on behalf of the Lord, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of it old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Psalm 106, verse 21 says that they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. The psalmist there connects the events of the Exodus and the things that took place in Egypt as proof of God's role as Savior. It is the same Lord who was present in Exodus that now orchestrates salvation for those who would believe. And it is the same Lord that has now called Paul to apostleship. But he doesn't do this alone. He does it in conjunction with Christ Jesus. Who, who through his participation in the same plan brings the hope of salvation that was not previously possible. Hence, Christ Jesus, our hope. Together, God the Son and God the Father, they call Paul to service. The presence of both God the Father and God the Son in this divine commission of Paul, it underscores the unity that they have amongst themselves. I remember just last week as we spoke of the Good Shepherd 
as Christ preached about himself, we saw that same unity. We saw it expressed in God's plan for the cross, with God's plan for that to be the central act of salvation. And Christ, by his willingness to participate in that plan, showed that he was unified and agreed with the Lord. Now that we see that unity once again, but now it's expressed more personally because they joined together to designate Paul as an apostle. It is the same unity that causes them to execute a divine commission on your life and mine. If you sit here this morning professing Christ as Lord, Christ as Savior, then what you've seen is that they've joined together to issue a charge for you and I. In the New Testament days of the early church, an apostle was a very special designation reserved only for those who had seen Christ and who had been chosen directly by him. Their apostleship then was confirmed by the Holy Spirit, whose work through them was apparent in signs and miracles that were done for the benefit of the church. But according to 1 Corinthians 12, that form of apostleship has now passed away. We cannot expect to come across apostles in the same nature today. By definition, though, the word apostle is simply one who has been sent. An apostle has been commissioned by the Lord and sent out on his behalf, very much like we see in the Great Commission. In the same way that God the Father and God the Son jointly issue a commission upon Paul's life, they have done so with the Great Commission on our lives charging us then to live out this call. We have been personally chosen like Paul, called upon to glorify the Lord by serving him. It's unlikely that the Lord would choose to use us in the very same way that he chose to use Paul, and that's okay. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it reminds us, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those words offer assurance, affirming that divine commission of the Lord on our life. That in calling us, he's already prepared the work for us. So consider that God the Father and God the Son have united together to place a commission on our lives. That commission is of divine origin for divine purposes. His purpose in bestowing a spiritual gifting on any one of our lives, as we see in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, was to equip us, to allow us to fully live out our commission for the sake of his glory. This is a divine commission. In a typical manner for a letter of the day, though, Paul not only introduces himself, he then identifies who his intended recipient is. It's Timothy. There seems to be a clear expectation, though, that the entire church will read this letter at some point. But it was specifically directed at Timothy because he is the one who bears the responsibility for the ongoing spiritual health of the church in Ephesus. And so Paul writes, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, 
As we look into Timothy's background, I want you to know, second, the divine call. The divine call. <clears throat> By this point, Paul and Timothy have been together for nearly 15 years. They've served the Lord together in various ways, in various places. We're first introduced to Timothy in Acts chapter 16, our scripture reading this morning. And we learn that he's from Lystra, which is found in the Roman province of Galatia. And Paul elects to take Timothy with him on his second missionary journey. From that point forward, they form this very close bond. And they will remain together pretty much until Paul's death. Timothy is at Paul's side when he writes the letter to the Romans. And he's at Paul's side when he writes the letter to the, se the second letter, at least, to the Corinthians. Perhaps the first as well. And then Timothy will be found at Paul's side during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. The only time they seem to be separated is when Paul dispatches Timothy on his behalf to serve in various churches for specific reasons. And he seems to do this frequently. It's clear that Paul trusts Timothy, even with some of the most serious tasks of ministry. That closeness and that bond, it allows Paul to write, my true child in the faith. It is a phrase that Paul reserves only for Titus and Timothy and nobody else. Timothy is marked as a true child by his faith. This faith was acquired long before Paul and Timothy were even ever acquainted. <clears throat> it began when he was a child, according to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. And desiring to leave Timothy with some encouragement before Paul is set to die, Paul urges him, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That training that Paul speaks of came in the form of teaching and discipleship from Timothy's own grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, according to at least chapter 1, verse 5 of that book. Allow me to make an important side comment here by noting just how critical that is. Just as Paul has fulfilled his divine commission as an apostle, Eunice and Lois have fulfilled their divine commission to make disciples as well, but they do so by beginning in the home. They are following the works that were prepared for them beforehand, and they do so by function as the Lord had intended, parents discipling children. It points to the influence of mothers in the lives of their children too. Augustine credits his own relationship with the Lord to the faithfulness of his mother. He writes, my mother, as if writing to God, my mother, your faithful servant, she was weeping for me to you, weeping more than mothers weep for the bodily death of their sons. For she, by that faith and spirit which she had from you, saw the death in which I lay, and you, Lord, heard her prayer. You heard her, and you did not despise her tears, which fell streaming and watered the ground beneath her, yes, in every place where she prayed. 
Indeed, you heard her. It's a shame, though, that what it appears for both Augustine and Timothy is that in either case, their fathers don't seem to be present. Imagine how much more prepared they would have been if both parents had been involved. Consider the blessings that those fathers missed out on in watching their children grow in that faith. It is possible that Timothy's dad had died. I don't know. It seems very unlikely, though. But we can at least praise God that there was at least one parent, and in Timothy's case, a grandparent as well, who sought to obey and honor the Lord by shepherding Timothy towards God. The lack of a father is overcome by God's placement of Paul into Timothy's life. Because Paul then begins to teach and mentor Timothy. He can do so only because Eunice and Lois have discipled Timothy, teaching him, teaching him and, and developing in him a sincere faith as Paul calls it in 2 Timothy 1.5. They have set a foundation in Timothy's life, and now Paul builds off of that. He takes Timothy with him on a second missionary journey, and he begins to place him into service, sending him off to various places to serve the Lord. Paul has utilized Timothy in the work in Macedonia. He's even utilized him in the work in Corinth. No doubt, he's probably instructing him along the way, mentoring him to fulfill the work of the Lord. I think Paul is going along and sending Timothy here and providing oversight. And, and when Timothy doesn't know what to do, he can come back to Paul and say, what do I do? And in, a, in any case, Paul's probably still providing instructions. And before anyone says, well, that's a bit of reach, we don't know that. Actually, we do. This letter gives evidence to that. In the next verses, we learn that Timothy is in Ephesus, and he's been sent there by Paul. The church in Ephesus is in the middle of a severe crisis, and Paul trusts Timothy enough to send him there and mediate and work through that crisis. But Paul doesn't leave him alone. He continues to follow up, and he provides instruction. In this case, he sends this letter we shouldn't be surprised by this process of mentoring because it was modeled by Christ early on when he um, mentored the disciples. Paul not only adopts that method from Christ, he speaks further of it in 2 Timothy. And so it is this ongoing work that allows Paul to call Timothy not just a true child in the faith, but my true child in the faith. My child. Notice, though, that, that though Timothy is on his own, doing that ministry, that inter-ministry work, Paul, Paul still bears the responsibility here. He's still under Paul's authority. John Kitchen points out that only one who lives under authority is ready to exercise authority. That's what we see in Timothy. This is a divine call to be a true child in the faith. One who would be a faithful follower of Christ and that would demonstrate that by faithful labor for the church of Christ. As Paul introduces himself, we see that divine commission. 
in which the Lord commissioned Paul as an apostle. And as he greets Timothy in that next part, we see the divine call, a divine call from the Lord for the life of Timothy, in which Timothy grows personally in the grace and knowledge of the Lord so that he may then serve the Lord. I want you to note now the divine character. In writing to Timothy, Paul says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul does what he always does when he's writing. He, he sends some sort of greeting, imparting grace and peace. But this time he does something different because now he includes mercy. This is both intentional and critical. Paul has sent Timothy again into a very difficult and trying situation. This is underscored by the absence of something particular in this letter. In all of Paul's letters, as he writes to the various churches and the various people, he consistently includes some sort of notes of thanksgiving. But we don't find that here. So concerned about the situation in Ephesus, Paul skips his usual thanksgiving, and he jumps right into the content of his teaching. As we advance through the letter, we'll see that indeed there was great reason for Paul to be so concerned and now recognizing it, in order to effectively shepherd that Ephesian church, Timothy will need each one of these. And so he imparts grace and mercy and peace. But Paul doesn't impart his own grace and mercy and peace. Nor does he mean for Timothy to summon it up from within himself. Human grace, human mercy, human peace, they're, they're insufficient Instead, what this situation requires is the grace and the mercy and the peace that come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As each of those characteristics has a specific role in the life of a believer, it will also have a specific role in the function of the church here. False teaching is divisive. It creates division, always. It will disrupt the order amongst the church, and it will sow discord amongst the body of Christ. In writing about marriage and encouraging husbands to love their wives, Paul uses the example of Christ's love for the church. And he says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. And here's the example. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. The example he gives is of Christ loving the church, developing the idea that the body cannot hate its own body. But in a very scary turnaround, that is exactly the effect of the false teaching. It turns the body against itself. And the only way to overcome that is by God's grace. The only way to overcome any sin is by God's grace. But in this case, the only way they're going to overcome the sin of false teaching that is taking place in the church in Ephesus is by that grace. That's the one to call to lead the church through this crisis then. It is up to Timothy to be the first to display and model that grace. It will be displayed by Timothy as he confronts the false teaching and his patient teaching of the church. It will be displayed in his loving confrontation of the false teachers, and it will be displayed, if necessary, in the necessary discipline of those involved. 
It does nothing to confront contention with contention. But rather, the character of the body of Christ must reflect the character of God, allowing his grace to prevail as its primary disposition. This disposition of grace comes from a disposition of mercy. In the Old Testament, that mercy is referred to as loving kindness. Commentator Perry describes it as God's active intervention to help. While another commentator, Holt, will say that it is the coming down of the Most High to help the helpless. With that in mind, mercy is, of course, most prominently displayed of the coming down of God to help the helpless by dying on the cross and placating his own wrath. But there's a nuance to mercy that is it's important for us to understand here. God's mercy is specifically his compassion on those who are suffering. But they're suffering as a result of sin. God's mercy or compassion, it's not God saying, you're having a bad day. I will grant my mercy over your life. No, this is God saying, look at how my people suffer because of their sin. I need to have mercy on them. Permit me to have mercy on them. That concept of mercy is important because it transforms how Paul and Timothy deal with the false teaching here. Whether it is an argument over theology or the application of that theology, it's, it's easy for us to fiercely argue with one another. But we do so because we want to justify ourselves, to prove ourselves right. But having been recipients of God's mercy, Paul and Timothy... They cannot be motivated by their own desire to prove themselves correct here. They're not in Ephesus to say, I'm right and you're wrong, and that's just the end of it. The motivation for them is pity on the false teachers. They want to prove their case not because they want to correct only, but because they're saddened by the suffering that occurs as a result of the false teaching. They're saddened by the division that is created in the church. They're saddened by the discord even amongst them. And they're saddened now by the falling nature of some of those leaders. How different would life in any church be if people dealt with one another not out of wanting their own way, not wanting to be correct, but out of concern for the effects of sin in the other person's life? It would result in peace, which is the last characteristic here. I don't even necessarily mean peace with one another. I mean peace with God. Barclay rightly notes that peace is not the absence of trouble. It is the most comprehensive form of well-being. Notice the relationship between the three here. Seeing the damaging effects of sin and the suffering that results, people like us are compelled to act. We must respond. We must deal with it. But we do so with grace, seeking the Lord's work of repentance and reconciliation that ultimately results in peace, not just with one another, but with God. John Kitchen puts it this way. Grace forgives sin's debt. Mercy fills sin's devastation. And peace restores sin's disorder. 
Grace and peace and mercy are all necessary to the function of the church. And a church without these things is absent Christ. It's like a car without a transmission. That car may start. The engine may even hum as it should, and it, it will show no signs of trouble. But it will go nowhere. It cannot and it will not take people from one point to another. That is how it is with the church that lacks grace and mercy and peace, which we would see in the situation in Ephesus. Outwardly, it still looks like a church. They may even go through the emotions of a church, singing, doing communion, but it will never take people from salvation to sanctification. Our God is Lord over all. He is Lord over all creation. He is Lord over all cultures, and he is Lord over all churches. The church is his divine institution, initiated by him, and now it continues on his behalf. First Chronicles 15, under the direction of David, the ark of the Lord, it is brought into Jerusalem. And when it's brought forth, those carrying it set it inside a tent, a tent that David has pitched for this ark. Upon offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, appointing some of the Levites as minister. David then appoints a time of thanksgiving, a day of exaltation through song. And in 1 Chronicles 16:8, they begin to sing, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. On and on they sing praises. And then in verses 23 and 24, they sing our call to worship. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. In those days, it was by the ark that the Lord made his presence known and dwelt among his people. But today, it is by the church that the Lord makes himself known and dwells among people. The church exists as a perfect command of the Lord. And it is summoned to declare his saving work to the world and to make disciples of those who would believe. He does this by his divine call. He calls people unto himself, asking them to turn from the ways of the world and turn instead towards him. He calls them to the church. And to those he has divinely called, he has divinely commissioned. He has drafted them into his very own army and commissioned them to go out into spiritual battle on his behalf. He commands each of them to steward his truth, to steward his message, to steward his gospel. And he tells them to declare his glory among the nations. And that glory is declared through that divine character, grace, mercy, and peace. As the Lord has imparted each of these into the lives of his followers, they now turn and impart it to others, not so that they would be known, but so that God would be known more. His divine commission, his divine call, and his divine character are imparted on each person individually, but so that they may function corporately. Imagine all the people passing by outside on the streets. Imagine those who pass by and, and think about what they're missing. The people out there actually think they know what joy is. 
They actually think they know what beauty is or what love is. They actually think they know what truth is. And yet they live their lives apart from the one who is joy, the one who is truth, and the one who is love. They live apart from the very institution that the Lord has defined as a means to declare his love, to declare his joy, to declare his truth. The Lord issued a divine commission, a divine call, and a divine character to each of us individually, that we may participate corporately so that then the church would fulfill his divine charge, which is to sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, you are all-knowing, all-wise. And it is by your knowledge, by your wisdom, that you have instituted the church as a means of functioning within a, a world that is lost and separated from you, Lord. Father, we give you praise that you have this wisdom to orchestrate such a plan, such a perfect plan, and we are so grateful that you have called us to you, Lord. Father, I do pray that we would continue to see the importance of this church, not just our church, but of the church in general, Lord. Father, we may we see it as your means to declare your glory into a world that knows nothing of your glory. Father, I pray that you would just continue to guide and direct as we, we move forward through 1 Timothy in the upcoming months, Lord. And may we draw nearer to you and nearer to one another as a result. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.